<laughs> Brian, thanks for getting a blowout before the show today. That's really <laughs> above and beyond. It's not even Tuxedo Tuesday. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined like every week by uh, Bailey Perkins. How are you? Hey, everybody. I'm doing great. As good as I can be. As good as you. That's exactly right. Scott Melson, how are you, sir? Where did that come from? It came from the Tiger King. The cats and kittens? Yeah, check it out on Netflix. I have not yet watched watched Tiger King. I I will acknowledge. It's a phrase from Carol Baskins. So you got to watch it. My wife pointed out this morning that that phrase might not have originated with Carol Baskin. The guy, Mike McGrath, that's the host of You Bet Your Garden, right? The public radio. He says that. And I looked it up and by golly, uh, she was right. So kudos to my wife, Katie, for that recognition. Also, yet again, something Carol Baskin has stolen from someone else. (laughs) I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna comment because I haven't seen it yet. But from the what I've seen on what I've seen on the Twitter, that seems appropriate. Uh, also joining us this week is special guest Brian Ted Jones. Hello, Brian. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. No, Brian. I'm looking at your uh, like I'm. I'm look. I can see you here on Squadcast where we're recording, and it gives all of us names. Did you pick your name, or is this the name that Squadcast assigned to you? It's the name Squadcast assigned to me, but it's not inaccurate. I am a passionate rocketeer. <laughs> I was going to say, I just, uh, I mean, if it was me, I, I would have been like, yeah, passionate rocketeer. That's what I go by. That's uh, you should, you can find me there on Facebook under passionate rocketeer. That's I mean, this is a free plug, but I will acknowledge that for the last uh, three, four weeks, we've been using squadcast.fm for our podcasting needs. Uh, and it's been a really great, platform uh, and it does as- randomly assign you really great names it's kind of like google docs when you get like curious badger or whatever if you're not signed in but these are more audio related except for rocketeer and and i've uh, i'm with you guys but i've enjoyed this platform so if you are a podcaster at home and you listen to our podcast check it out squadcast.fm maybe i'll let them know we did that and they'll send us like a free month or something All right, so this week on Thursday, Governor Stitt invoked the Catastrophic Health Emergency Powers Act. Cheapa. Cheapa, (laughs) which is a set of emergency powers that was passed, I guess, after the September 11th attacks, and they enable the state to respond more quickly to nuclear or biological attacks Needless to say, this has never been used before. And Andy, in 2007, it was expanded to now cover pandemics. So Right. Well, look at that. Some foresight on behalf of our state. So what this means is a couple of things. One, the, the legislature will go back to the Capitol next week for a special session to ratify the governor's declaration. And we'll talk more about that later on in this episode. And then more directly, Chipa gives Governor Stitt very broad powers. Some might argue that he is currently the most powerful governor in Oklahoma state history. Uh, 
Now, our good friend of the pod, Brian Jones, who's an Oklahoma attorney and also a member of the Freedom of Information Oklahoma Board, um, has been doing some research into this. Listeners, you might remember Brian as a former guest during our criminal justice series last year, and we thought it'd be good to have him back after several tweets last night about this um, to share a little bit about what he's been learning thus far. Brian, I saw you tweet earlier today that you were doing some research and went down a rabbit hole totally unrelated to Chipa. So let's start back with this emergency declaration first. I don't know. Where do we where do we even start with this? This is unprecedented territory. Well, not if you go back really far, because what Chipa is essentially is a version of the old Roman law that gave a single person dictatorial powers for a limited period of time when the city faced some extraordinary disaster or some precarious threat from outside. You remember in The Dark Knight, there's that scene at at dinner with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character and um, the guy who ended up becoming Two-Face. They talk about how the Romans would do this. This is, I mean, this is a version of that. Throughout history, we have found it necessary at times to empower our executive authorities um, specifically to respond to some massive disaster. And that's where Chipa comes in. I think that, you know, something, again, the history on this is, is that y'all provided really is important. The fact that Chipa is a post 9-11 statute uh, is, is really important. What what happened after 9-11, I think, is that um, people began to realize that state laws did not provide adequate tools for um, decision makers, particularly governors, particularly public health authorities, to respond to major disasters of a um, you know, biological or, or chemical uh, uh, kind. And um, one thing that I discovered in my research, I found a really interesting law review article from 2007 uh, discussing CHIPA, and it was actually developed by the Center for Law and the Public Health at Georgetown and Johns Hopkins Universities at the request of the CDC after 9-11. After 9-11, the CDC said, we need some model legislation that states can uh, look at and implement on their own to provide for additional powers in, in times of grave public health emergencies. And that's really the the long-term and short-term background here. So this is, you said a piece of model legislation. So are there like several other states that have essentially identical statutes on the books? Yeah, most of the states enacted some version of CHIPA after, um, after 9-11. Uh, the research I found indicated that 39 states had done it by... Um, by like April of 2003, which is pretty, pretty fast. And Brian, have you seen any states other than our own enact CHIPA for this particular pandemic? No, I haven't. That's a good question. I've not seen any other state where the governor has specifically invoked CHIPA or a CHIPA type statute to um, access additional powers. That would be, uh, it, it may have happened, um, but but I haven't seen that. 
before we get before we get too much further we've uh you know we've talked about like we've i love that scene that you're talking about i know exactly the one you're talking about whether at dinner in the dark night um um i also love the history of rome podcast um um which is a fantastic show that delves into this at several points but before we get too far too much farther when we use words like dictator and like extra powers and you know i think i think it's important that we maybe lay out for the listeners and for us, because I don't know the detailed answer to this question. What exactly does Chipa give the governor the authority to do? And perhaps as important, if not more importantly, what does it not give him the power to do? Yeah, those, that's a critical question. I mean, and again, kind of going back into to human history, even in, in Rome, whenever they would invoke the, the powers of the dictator, they would always limit it. And it was limited in time, specifically. It was limited to six months. Um, and so that is, I think, one of the most important characteristics of Chipa is that it only allows the governor to invoke these powers for 30 days at a time. And, but to, to address kind of your, your other question, that's, I mean, that's a big limitation. But beyond that, the governor's new powers are really extraordinary. I'll list off um, his new constitutional powers. He can suspend any law that might prevent, hinder, or delay the state's emergency response. He can use the resources of any state agency or any city, county, or town to aid the response. He can completely reorganize the state government if he wants to in aid of the response. He can mobilize the National Guard into service to aid the response, and he can seek aid from other states or the federal government. Now, those are his new constitutional powers, and they're, I mean, that's a lot that he's allowed yes, to do under those the are, statute. Those are big deals. <laughs> those are big deals. He also has some interesting funding powers. Under Chipa, the governor can transfer up to $50 million in any one fiscal year from any fund available to him in the treasury. The money only must be repaid when funds become available for that purpose. So it's it's there's no actual requirement that the funds be repaid. You simply must repay them when they become available. And so, you know, it's 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 a you know in a way it's a zero percent interest loan from the entire treasury to the governor that he must make sure gets repaid, but he doesn't have to, there's no term on it. He doesn't have to repay it within a certain period of time. And so I don't know how this money necessarily gets repaid. He can only transfer the money. Go ahead. Does it, when you say any funds available to him from any fund in the government or in the treasury, does that include the corpus of a trust? Like say the tobacco settlement endowment trust or say the school land trust? It's a great question. And Chipa doesn't really, um, yeah, it doesn't really say. I mean, any fund available to him in the treasury. What does that mean? Um, I think now, you know, we could we could get into litigation on this down the road, maybe. But I think it would be difficult for the governor to use statutory authority to access any fund that is constitutionally restricted, and the the Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust is constitutionally restricted. Um, so I think that would be, I mean, I think that would be hard. Um, but again, the, the, the statute doesn't really make that clear. Um, the limitations on, on the governor's ability to access this, this money 
are also pretty loose. He can only transfer it when there's no appropriation available to aid emergency response or when existing appropriations are insufficient to aid the response or where federal funding to aid the response is contingent on there being some state funding. However, we just, I mean, the, the Board of Equalization just certified a revenue failure uh, within the last hour, I understand. And so there's not existing appropriations to, to aid this response. Um, and the other interesting thing about these payments is they must be authorized by general approval of the governor. Again, we don't really know what that means. Does general approval mean there has to be some you know, written record that can then be audited later on? Or does it mean the governor can say to any person under his authority, you have my approval to go and spend this money however, you know, go uh, spend this money however you feel you need to, if you're, say, the commissioner of health, um, and then we'll, you know, you just have my personal authority to do it. It's just not really clear. And there's not, again, because this is the first time we've ever invoked this statute. Well, and Brian, I do have a question for you. Um, yeah. With all that you said and the amount of power that will be um, granted to the governor and so many unknowns as we go into the stage with uh, CHIPA being enacted, uh, we know that there's a component for the legislature. So what does that mean in terms of special session? And before we go into your explanation, I want to make sure that our reader, our listeners understand uh, what special session means. And so when we go into a special session, it means that the governor or the legislature can call a specific topic and the legislature has to address that specific topic whenever a special session is called. It can happen after legislative sessions. The legislative session usually runs from that first Monday of February to the last Friday of May, um, but it can also happen concurrently with regular session, which we saw a couple of years ago. And so now we're seeing that happen again to where we're gonna have a special session on top of a regular session. So you can talk, Brian, about why are we going into a special session? What is the legislature's role in this? And yeah. Yeah, I mean, the it, it really, this is one of those instances where you really do see separation of powers at work because what CHIPA allows the governor to do is to unilaterally by himself declare this emergency that gives him these broad constitutional authorities that he didn't have before. As a check on that power, CHIPA requires that any declaration of emergency also include a call into special session by the governor of the legislature. And what the legislature's role here is gonna be is extremely limited. The legislature is gonna take one vote in both houses on whether they concur with the emergency declaration or wish to terminate the emergency declaration. So if they concur, then that's that's like ratifying the governor's decision that there's an emergency and that he has these powers. Uh, the legislature could also terminate them, but there would have to be a majority in both houses to terminate. So, say that last point again. I'm sorry. Yeah. So this is um, the statute does not require um, anything beyond a simple majority in both houses to either concur with the governor's declaration or terminate it. That's the only two options. 
but it 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 seems to be in place effective immediately exactly pin, pending the ratification now that's exactly right fast forward with 7 14 days right let's say the okay. governor does suspend some law some statute his decision right mm-hmm. whatever it is does does any i guess really the question is does any action the governor takes under chipa require additional ratification or could he really do whatever he wants to do and then we as a state have to deal with the consequences we as the state have to deal with the consequences so if let's you know let's say that we get you know half a month into this thing and the governor um suspends some law there's a massive public outcry um there's nothing that the legislature could do at that point to early terminate the dec- the emergency declaration. Um, they have to wait till the 30 days. Have to wait till the 30 days expire, and then let's let's say under that scenario, the governor decided to announce another declaration to extend it for another 30 days. The governor would have to bring the legislature back, and then the legislature could terminate that declaration. So this strikes me. It, two things funny about this. One is that clearly in 2007, when we added a pandemic to be part of this, which was a good move, we didn't really think through the infectiousness of a pandemic, right? Like um, the idea that we'd have to gather 149 uh, folks together in a building with an infectious agent. So that's just a, a, a teensy bit comical in my mind. Well, and having members who have that particular agent. So that adds a whole nother level. And the second thing is that, I mean, this is presumably not going to happen, but in theory, the governor could come in on Tuesday after the the legislature meets and ratifies this and say, I don't know, I'm dissolving the state department of education and everyone must be homeschooled. All of our remaining education money is being dedicated to buy ventilators and PPE. And there's nothing we could do about it in the short run. Well, he can only appropriate up to 50 million. So I guess there's some limits there. Or Andy, a more realistic example could be, I'm going to consolidate the health agencies during Ooh, the 30 days. Yes. But then what happens after the 30 days? Do they go back or does that reorganization stay in place? Or is it only because all these actions are supposed to be done? And this is a question I have. All these actions are supposed to be done in order to aid, like the word, the phrase that you use, and I assume this is what's in the statute, is to aid in the state's response, right? So like, is there any, it sounds like there's not legislative oversight there. Is there even like judicial review here? Because like, I mean, I'm going to throw out a wacky example, but it's one that I think Brian will be able to speak to because of a lot of kind of the work that he does. But let's say that in the next 15 days, the governor comes out and says, hey, you know what? Um, I'm actually going to suspend medical marijuana in Oklahoma. Medical marijuana as of now is illegal because I have, you know, somebody that I trust has told me that people who use medical cannabis are more likely to get coronavirus and they're going to get it bad. And when they get it bad, they're more likely to die. I want to be clear. I'm not aware of any medical data that says that. Um, I'm just throwing this out as an example. Like, is there a way for people who use 
use medical cannabis to go to the courts and say, hey, this clearly isn't what the law was intended for. He's using this as an excuse to get rid of something he doesn't like. Or like, I mean, is there is there any oversight or is this like for the next 30 days he can do whatever he wants? It's a really interesting question. You guys all raise really like good hypotheticals for thinking through how this statute might work. Um, there's nothing in CHIPA that provides for any judicial review whatsoever um, under the under the strict letter of the law. There is some provision for uh, civil condemnation proceedings, but I think that's more for maybe we need to condemn a building because there's been some kind of biological agent that we can't control otherwise. Uh, but there's nothing in CHIPA that says you can sue the governor if you think that he's overstepped his boundaries. Now, that being said, there is almost always some way to get into court on something like this. Um, for instance, and to kind of go to... The court's not really meeting right now. All the courthouses are closed. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you still could... So kind of let me kind of take Bailey's hypothetical for um, for a moment where he's consolidated. Actually, let me take Andy's hypothetical for a moment where the governor has said, I am suspending the um, I'm suspending in school instruction and switching us all over to homeschooling. Um, and, and I'm just going to do that. And I think I need to do that because of, of the emergency. We can't have kids being outside the house. So there's actually some emergency response rationale there. Um, that's a big thing to do. And I think if the governor were to do any big, big things like that, um, there would be somebody in some capacity as a, as a plaintiff who could find a way to craft, I would expect, a petition for declaratory judgment and um, with a request for a writ of mandamus from the state Supreme Court directing the governor to not do that or saying that he's outside the bounds of, of CHIPA in doing that. Um, and again, kind of getting back to separation of powers, that's the kind of thing that judges do not want to do. I mean, under these circumstances in particular, there's, there's, it's just very hard to imagine you would have five judges in any appellate court in the country who would really be eager to get into executive action like that and, and issue an order saying the governor can't do whatever it is he's, he's tried to do. But Bailey raises a really interesting point about whether anything the governor does in, under CHIPA could be in some sense permanent, right? So like, let's say, I mean, the governor has made it clear that he's interested in, uh, Governor Stitt has made it clear that he's interested in consolidating some of our health agencies. CHIPA does give the governor authority to reorganize state government to address uh, emergency response. Um, so if he want, if he said, well, it just makes more sense for us to organize things this way now, um, it would definitely expire. I mean, w w when the emergency declaration expired after 30 days, that reorganization would no longer be in effect. But what does that really mean? And let's, let's really take what I think is both um, an extreme case and an exceedingly likely case. Let's take the case where we are in a series of continuously renewed emergencies every 30 days for the next I don't know, six months, year, year and a half. Um, at if the governor does decide to reorganize large chunks of the state government to address uh, the emergency during that 
period of extended emergencies, what, I mean, maybe that does stick. Maybe that does remain, I mean, maybe we get in there and realize it does work better that way. And, and they're just kind of a natural impulse to leave it, you know, leave it there. It's, this is, this raises a lot of very profound questions for what Oklahoma might look like on the other side of this. It's interesting though, because, because I, I mean, and again, huh, hashtag not a liar, but like, um, a lot of the way that Oklahoma state government is organized is set in many cases in the constitution or at least in statute. Right. So he can suspend those statutes, but they don't go away. So at the end of the emergency, it would still take acts of the legislature um, to make permanent those changes, right? If they're changes that are in, in statute and certainly if they're in the constitution, maybe they're suspended, but it like, cause that's like on the flip side, that would be kind of a gamble if you're the governor, right? Like I'm going to massively reorganize this big chunk of state government. Um, and it's going to come at, uh, at great, at great expense when in six months, you know, if we don't have the votes to keep it that way, it's going to come at great expense to go back the way the law says it has to be, right? Yeah, it, it, you know, executive power is unique in that, unlike legislative power, which can really only be exercised on the floor of the legislature, or judicial power, which can only be exercised in, in the court system and through the courts, executive power operates in the world. You know, it, 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 there are offices that do things. There are people that go out and collect data and enforce regulations. And in order to address the emergency, the governor might decide to, to reorganize things in a functional way that leaves us in a state when we get to the other side of the emergency where it would actually take some doing to put them the way they were. And it's always easier to get the legislature to ratify an existing state of affairs through legislation than it is to get them to change things by legislation in the first place. So, you know, I've only really talked about the new powers that the governor obtains under CHIPA, but a really important component is the new power that the health department is going to gain also, because the way CHIPA works, it, 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 ties the governor and the commissioner of health and through the commissioner of health, the department of health, very close together in responding to the emergency, which makes sense. I mean, that's just makes good practical sense that the public health commissioner is going to be working with the governor on, on responding. Um, but the health department gains some pretty significant new powers under CHIFA also. Um, the health department gains express authority to identify any persons believed to be exposed to coronavirus, subject them to proper control measures, develop information from them to determine the source and spread, close and evacuate any facility reasonably suspected of an infection for examination and decontamination. And it also gives the health department the authority to purchase and distribute medicine or medical supplies needed without any legislative authorization. So I, I think the idea here is that this $50 million that the governor can take from any fund available to him could be used through um, the health department 
to purchase anything we might need for the response without any uh, legislative appropriation. And it also gives the health department the authority to ration medicine or medical supplies that, that might aid the response. Uh, and a really important component here is that under CHIPA, the health department is authorized to request the Department of Public Safety to help them enforce any order that they develop pursuant to the emergency response. And the Department of Public Safety can request assistance from the National Guard to enforce those responses. So let's say, for instance, that the health department determines that Andy's house is infected with coronavirus. Um, I mean, you just that's obviously a really like silly example, but let's just say that they 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 decide that this house in particular needs to be closed, evacuated, and decontaminated. Um, and it, obviously, we would this would be the kind of thing that would more realistically happen to something like an elementary school or a you know uh, any any public any building in the state, right? Hotel, right? But not only can they shut that facility down and go in and, and decontaminate it, but they can use the, the, the National Guard or the Highway Patrol to enforce those orders if they want to. Another really important component of CHIPA has to do with health information. CHIPA makes all police agencies, state agencies, and local governments mandatory reporters of COVID-19 cases. And, they, and, and that is a, a clear requirement. If you are the the you know sheriff of Latimer County and you determine there is a COVID-19 case in your jurisdiction, you have to report that to the health department. Um, a health department has to report that both to the, the Department of Public Safety and tribal and federal authorities. There is a tension between the information sharing requirements of CHIPA and things like HIPAA and things like personal privacy. Um, CHIPA says you have to share that information in compliance with HIPAA and you it, the information sharing must be restricted to only the information needed to address the response. But this is a, a really important part. What, what CHIPA does is it really turns the entire state law enforcement apparatus and the entire state health department apparatus into a COVID-19 response network, and it's aimed at developing information quickly, figuring out where uh, where the virus is, and it authorizes the, the health department, the highway patrol, and the National Guard to do anything needed to identify p- persons infected, um, develop information from them, and, and it, it just it really empowers um, the health department quite a bit. So... So uh, apart from, you know, worst case scenario, like the the ideas we had earlier of like how this could go wrong, there are a ton of ways this could go right. And it arguably begs the question, why didn't we declare this two weeks ago? Because the governor was out to eat. <laughs> no, the governor claims that he <laughs> has been monitoring the data. So that's been his rationale for how he's been responding throughout the past few weeks. So he couldn't he couldn't declare it two weeks ago because he was at dinner at the collective. Well, I uh, you're, I think you're both right. Um, he he obviously was at dinner because he tweeted about it. Um, but secondly, I think he has been following the data. However, as as Scott and I, 
yell at each other via text every day, the data sucks so far, right? Like our our denominator is tiny. We have not been doing widespread testing. And, and that's really starting like yesterday or the day before that they have the drive-in or drive-through testing sites with the goal of testing a lot of people. And like they were, you know, the governor said, if you've had symptoms of here's the list of any of these symptoms, or if you've been exposed to it, I encourage you to go to one of these places and get tested. And, and so I hope that we'll see an increase in testing and that will expand the, the denominator of our data and help us have a more accurate picture of what's really happening out in the world with this virus. How many folks are infected? And that number tells us very little, arguably. We talk about cases all the time, but the number of folks who are positive is not as indicative as like the number of people who are in the hospital, in ICU, on ventilators, or the number of folks who have died, right? Like we expect the number of cases to dramatically increase by like a tenfold. And we expect the number of, of deaths to increase as well, but but proportionally to be a much smaller, right? As it goes along. And, and so if he's been following the data, sure. But like, if you've only tested 700 people, then out of 4 million, then like, that's not a lot of data to go on. One of the things that's interesting about Stitt's response to me is that he's there'll be these sudden leaps in in action. Um, I was surprised um, when he uh, promulgated his the first executive order that said safer at home, non-essential businesses have to close. Uh, that took me by surprise. He had not he had indicated he did not want to do that prior to. Um, and, and, and so I was also surprised when yesterday he invoked Chipa. I, so something is driving his decision making on this where, you know, he feels like, all right, I'm going to make a big change based on what I'm seeing right now. And that is to a certain extent encouraging, right? You don't want. I mean, we have seen people in, we've seen decision makers, governors, mayors, presidents. I don't know why it would be plural, shouldn't be, but we have, you know, the federal government uh, not respond to this crisis in ways that um, one would expect them to. Uh, so I, I do like that we are seeing our governor take these big steps because, you know, all constitutional concerns aside, this is a huge, huge problem that we just we got behind on as a as a society. We got really far. We got really behind on this problem, and we're playing catch up right now. Well, I'd also add too that there's also public pressure right now with so much happening in other states rapidly, um, and the reporting on how other states are handling you know this pandemic i believe adds a, le a level of pressure for the governor to add necessary responses i believe it was the new york times that reported that oklahoma was second to last in taking precautionary measures to help people social distance and do the things that we need to do to help flatten the curve and so he's also a very competitive governor who wants to be 
top 10 and things good. And so I think those daily, actually hour by hour reports um, are also invoking his competitive spirit of how do we make sure that Oklahomans are going to fare better off in in this? Because even the response to go from tests are only limited to X amount of people and then all of the rising complaints of I can't access a test, why are there limited tests, to now him saying everyone, whoever has COVID symptoms, do not deny them a test as of, I think that was yesterday, my days are running together. Um, that rapid change is really interesting, like you said, Brian, but I also think it's what's happening around us is influencing how quickly he's also making decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that all of that is correct. I think there's also something else at play, and um, uh, this will shock no one who uh, listens to our show regularly. I, I have a slightly more cynical take <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, you know, I th- I mean, I think that's all right. I I think though that one thing, one way in which this very much holds true um, to what I think what I think we know about Governor Stitt is that he is he is an executive. And one of his frustrations um, ever since coming into office has been that he can't, all his assertions to the contrary, he can't run the state of Oklahoma the way that he runs his business because as the CEO of his business, ultimately every decision is up to him, right? He delegates and he forms you know, committees and departments and hires and fires. But at the end of the day, if he wants something done at his company, that thing is going to get done because it's his company, right? That's not how the state of Oklahoma works. And I think that's something he's found frustrating. Like, no, I can't do this. I have to have the, like, the legislature has to approve it. Or there's some law that says we can't do this thing that I think makes sense. But some law from 1943 says the governor's not allowed to do that. I think he finds that really frustrating. I also think, um, and I don't, I don't really mean this in an insulting way, but I also don't think that the governor, I don't think that, I don't think the governor was a, uh, I don't think he was a close student of all the esoteric powers that the executive can assert in times of emergency prior to um, uh, uh, entering office. And I think at some point well, down the way, governance. so right. there's no way you can have that knowledge base if you've never served in government before. Right. 100%. That's exactly my point. I think at some point in the last couple of weeks, somebody has told the governor like, hey, dude, like shit gets bad enough. There's this deal you can invoke. And if you invoke it, that puts you like in charge. Like if like that that makes you like the guy where you can do pretty much anything you want to do to try and stop this. And so I think and I and I don't mean that in a way that is. to, to suggest that he has any kind of like malicious or like untoward intent at all. I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is like a necessarily like a power grab by the governor to do something that, but I think, I think the idea of being able to work in a system where he is like, quote unquote, to, to quote the, uh, what 41st, 43rd president of the United States where he can be the decider. I think, um, I think that really, speaks both to his personality, but also to his professional experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, mean, I think totally makes sense. I mean, for anyone who's worked at any organization of a, of a certain size, right? Like we all are familiar with the sluggishness of bureaucracy and what that looks like. Like I, I've worked for government entities and it was painful how difficult it was to get anyone to 
make a decision or, or act on something. And I can totally sympathize with the governor to be the head honcho, right? And be like, hey, listen, we need to respond. We need to respond to this virus right now. And if I can't do it, like, and someone being like, um, sir, there's a little known law that we've never actually used that would let you do that. And it, I, so I, I think the, the struggle, and this is a, a classic struggle in government, right? Is that the potential for good is very big. And that means the potential for bad is also very big. Right. And so we've I think we've done a great job of kind of highlighting both sides of that equation. Right. That this might allow the state to respond to the virus in ways we haven't done so far that we desperately need to. But also we need to pay close attention like we the people need to pay close attention because we have plenty of examples in in human history of, of when an individual or government gets a little extra power using that power for evil rather than good. And I'm not saying that the governor state would do that. I don't, he doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. Um, and I, I know that he does not want Oklahomans to die unnecessarily to the, with, with this disease. But um, I do think it, it shows to me, it shows why we as citizens, as residents of the state need to pay attention to what happens in our government because most of us had no idea this law was out there, that this was even an option. And now we're just trying to take stock of what could happen. And we want to believe that he is going to act in our best interest. And I think that's the case. But I'm still like, this is like a trust but verify situation. Well, yeah, because I mean, you know, like, and I, I echo everything that you said, right? Like, I, I, I agree that like if there's ever a time to uh, kind of invoke the powers and privileges that this law gives the executive, I think this is the time to do it. Um, I think that you're both right that this absolutely offers the potential for us to respond in a way that we haven't. Um, and, and I hope that that's how we use it. And I, I am honest, I'm pretty confident that that's what I'm, I should say, I'm very confident that that's the governor's intent and that's what he's going to try to do. You know, we'll see how effective it is. Um, I think that the efficacy is going to have to be guided in large part by, um, to some extent, educated guesswork because of how little like on the ground data we have about um, the state of the virus in Oklahoma right now, but hopefully that gets better. I will say, you know, there are other examples around the world of people using powers like this to respond to the virus that are not going super well. Um, is anybody here familiar with a guy by the name of Victor Orban? Victor Orban, anyone? It sounds familiar, but... The- uh, so Victor Orban is the prime minister of Hungary who has... Uh, yeah, so... Uh, and Prime Minister Orban, I think in the last week to 10 days, has invoked a law in Hungary that essentially gives himself pretty much limitless power to do whatever he wants for as long as he decides it's necessary to respond to the coronavirus outbreak. Now, this was ratified by, I don't think a two-thirds vote, maybe a simple majority. It was ratified by the parliament there. So he did have, like, they they could have said no, but um, I don't think that Mr. Orban would have taken the step if he didn't think he had the votes. Um, but that's a situation where, you know, human rights and democracy watchers um, and nonprofit organizations around the world are looking at that situation with alarm because this is a man who's been making authoritarian grabs ever since he came into power 
and now looks like he's found a way to solidify that power for the foreseeable future. Um, and again, I do not like that's not what is happening in Oklahoma. And I don't think that there's any reason to think that that ever would happen in Oklahoma. But it is just one of those things that like it's just it giving one person such like what feels to us as Americans like limitless authority, even for 30 days is just such an affront to, I think, all the assumptions we have about how our government works, that it just, like, it's necessary, but man, that's a big step. And it's new for such a populous state like Oklahoma. So this will definitely be a new era for the amount of trust that we have for um, our executive leadership. Yeah, I think this, I mean, among many other things that are on unprecedented waters, I think this is definitely one of them, right? Like in a way that that six months ago, two months ago, none of us would have anticipated. So I think um, maybe let's pivot a little bit away from just the governor and talk about what this means for other branches of the government, specifically the, the legislature. As we mentioned earlier, they will be coming back for special session on Monday, and they have released some plans for what that looks like. Uh, I think for both chambers, that means a staggered um, approach to who will be in the chamber at any given moment. Um, no more than sp- 10. So. No more than 10, right? If you got a fever, you can't come. Um, if you've been diagnosed, you can't come. Obviously, the House um, has released their kind of rules and how this will work, which I really appreciate. That's really helpful. Um, skeleton crew, you know, kind of uh, there. Um, the get public gallery is closed. Bailey and I texted yesterday. We're worried about the the sergeants, right? We don't want them to to, to risk anything. Well, they are allowing those who are immunocompromised or have the virus um, or are experiencing symptoms to vote by proxy. And I think that's really important to ensure that representation isn't lost um, for our members to still have a voice, even if they're affected by this virus. And so I wonder, too, you know, what happens after everything clears and we're able to go back to what feels like normal if some of these flexibilities will be able to be instituted into how we do things at the Oklahoma State Legislature. Yeah, right. Like I think we're learning a lot of things that are good um, that might actually be helpful once they're not just emergency measures. Like once we get used to them, like uh, Brian, you and I talked about this before we got started recording that, you know, even things to do with like open records uh, and open meeting act, this like virtualization and the rules they've changed for that might actually be helpful for the state. It is the year 2020. The Jetsons were flying around by now. The idea that we could have virtual meetings that are recorded, right? Like is actually in my mind, more transparent than in-person meetings only, right? At least you could go back and you would have the tape that you could go to of what happened in that meeting. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that we need to really, I mean, right now we're still in damage control and, and trying to figure that out. But I think in the in the long run, as this stretches into April, May, June, August, November, who knows, um, we will have to reflect on like, is this the new normal? And is this actually better in some ways? 
So another thing I want to I want to say is that while we know the legislature is going to be in special session on Monday, um, I've kind of heard through the grapevine, and and I think maybe you guys have as well that while they're there, they might go ahead and get the budget knocked out. Budget time. I don't have our little soundboard with this uh, this podcast set up, but I think and also the budget has never happened in March. Or April, like ever, they talk about it every year. Well, we'll be done early this year, and they never are. <laughs> we're gonna um, try to start work. We're gonna try to start working on a budget in March. We don't want to wait. Don't, don't want to leave till the end. We're, it's we're like two days there. before Sinai Die. That'll be done. <laughs> uh, but I think, I mean, given the fact that we all expect, and the well, we'll say the experts expect that the surge in the number of cases will be increasing towards the the end of April and uh, into May. There's a, definitely an argument to be made to go ahead and get it knocked out now so they don't have to try to figure out how to go in when, you know, a number of them are possibly infected and just things look worse. Uh, so if they come back next week, they might... I, I sent this to you guys yesterday that there's a scenario where they gavel in the special session approve the governor's cheaper designation and then gavel out or even adjourn special session because that's all they that's all they have to talk about and then they immediately gavel in for the regular session vote on the budget and then gavel out um, and potentially adjourn then so they don't have that hanging over their heads and honestly it looks it looks like that honestly the budget this year might be fairly straightforward because right like there's so the board of equalization um uh, announced today it's what a 416 million dollar revenue failure for the remainder of fy 2020 um so that's a lot <laughs> um that would be and so typically what would happen is that you would automatically get 6.2 percent budget cuts uh, to all state agencies, but the board of equalization um, is going to meet on Monday, and when they declare that revenue failure, um, it's gonna it will it will allow the uh, it'll allow the legislature to tap into the rainy day fund. The rainy day funds right now at one point two billion, so you could get four hundred and twelve million there, um, and still have about eight hundred million left, which is you know a solid amount. Um, I think some of that money is probably going to be made up with by uh, federal dollars that are coming in from the coronavirus relief packages um so it it may be that this is like a just like pass the same budget try to hold everybody flat um and and not worry about it too much but we don't know that i was texting um you know as as rumors were trickling out yesterday that the budget was going to happen next week uh i was i was texting with a legislature a legislator last night and said uh, hey so uh i hear budget next week and they said yeah that's what it looks like and i said has anybody actually seen the budget? And their response was, well, I'm sure somebody has seen it, but I haven't, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> which which is not unusual because they right. tend to release it like... The day before? Hours or moments yeah. before they vote on it, right? Yeah. Right, there's a JCAB meeting and the budget comes out 10 minutes beforehand. And no one knows what room it's in. Yeah, right. Um, so I, it may be that there... It, it may be that actually, all things considered, there are less budget shenanigans this year than than what we usually experience yeah one it would make sense to me that they would quickly get the business done and get out because that is their 
sole constitutional responsibility is to pass a balanced budget before session concludes. And so um, if they don't get it done at this time, there is uncertainty about what happens from here and how they're able to get it done. So. Well, and usually when they're usually when they're all uh, waxing eloquent about the responsibilities of protecting the taxpayer dollar and appropriations and financial stewardship, they're, you know, sometimes people are looking for press. Sometimes it's, you know, this is it's they see it as their most important job duty, but they've never done it with the threat of a global pandemic hanging over them. And um, I'm uh, I'm I'm reminded of a scene in Friends where uh, Ross and Monica, Ross and Monica go back to their parents house because their parents are moving and they got to collect some of their belongings in there. They spend the first 30 seconds walking around the house going, oh, remember this and remember that and yada, yada. And dad, I can't believe you sold the house. And then their dad says, yeah, well. Now we just have to hope that the buyer's check clears before they discover the crack in the foundation of the asbestos in the ceiling. And then Ross says, he looks around and immediately goes from waxing nostalgic to let's get our stuff and get the hell out of here. And I think that may be where the, legis- that may be where the legislature is next week. It's like, uh, let's get this done and all get away from each other. I'm sure that hits extra close to home to you, Scott, as you prepare to sell your home. Um, and I'm certain that you have none of those issues to contend with. We had an excellent home inspection. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Well, um, I think we are drawing near to the end of the episode here. Um, Brian Jones, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Scott Bailey. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Yeah, man. Hey, everybody, uh, please, please, please stay home, stay home, watch a movie. I'm going to try and watch Tiger King this weekend. Um, Stay safe. I will say there's there's a movie that is released today that I'm excited to watch this weekend called Slay the Dragon. It's actually about anti-gerrymandering um, in other states. It's my understanding is that it um, it has a it kind of follows the Michigan campaign to end gerrymandering. And so I, I think it's going to be on Amazon Prime. I don't think it's on Netflix. I haven't seen it yet, but. Um, if you're sitting around this weekend or next week and looking for something to watch, uh, look for Slay the Dragon on whatever your on-demand streaming source is. I think it's released on-demand today. Um, and you guys should really check it out. Um, I'm going to. It seems interesting. I as Scott and I have talked to Katie Fahey, who ran the Voters Not Politicians campaign in Michigan, and so I'm uh, pretty excited to to kind of watch that film. All right, well, uh, that officially then brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Um, I know everyone's sitting at home and trying to manage kids and work and everything else. Set aside a little time this week. Go hide out in the backyard or the bathroom or wherever your safe place is and listen to a podcast for 45 minutes. And if by some reason that safe space for you is our podcast dealing with politics in Oklahoma then well for one God bless you and um, hit us up at podcast at let's fix this okay.org you can connect with us on social media at let's fix this okay Scott is at SC Nelson Bailey is at Bailey M Perkins and I am at Andy OKC Brian is at Brian Ted Jones on the Twitter um, our, you can like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash let's fix this. Okay. 
website, letsfixthisok.org. You are correctly sensing a trend with this. Um, our music is brought to you by an artist named So Down, and the track is called Rhino Funk. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government even during a coronavirus quarantine. We encourage you to get involved any way you can, and remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week. <laughs>